opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Linda Perel, CCB Secretary, welcoming you to the Saturday afternoon, May 14th session of the CCB Conference and Convention. I have the distinct pleasure of hosting this afternoon's session. And since I am such a book enthusiast, nothing could make me happier. So, um, but I'd like to start um, by uh, asking if Lisa's here, because I think we're gonna give away a door prize to get things going. I am here, Madam Secretary. Thank you, Madam Treasurer. So let's, $25 Amazon gift card provided by CCB. And let's spin the wheel. And the winner is David Jackson. Congratulations. Hey, Yay, DJ. Another San Francisco chapter winner. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Lisa. You're All welcome. Right. It is um, my pleasure to introduce our first uh, conversation between two ladies that I wish I lived closer to because I love them so much. Anyway, we'll start with um, our main um presenter, Susan Glass. Um, Susan has a new chat book. It's called The Wild Language of Deer. And that this book of poetry won the Elise Wolf Prize offered by the Slate Roof Press. Her poetry has appeared in such journals as Snowy Egret, the Broad River Review, Birdland Journal, and Fire and Rain, Eco-Poetry of California Honoring Nature. A California resident, she held a residency at the Cummington, Com Cummington Community of the Arts in Massachusetts and received her MFA from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Um, after teaching for many years at San Jose State University and West Valley Community College, she now co-edits the CCB Blind Californian and the newsletter for the American Association of blind teachers. She and her husband, John, share their home with her guide dog, Omni, whose combined work ethic and silliness ensure that all three remain irreverent, active, and well-loved. Susan today will be in conversation with her good friend, Alice Turner. Alice is the director 
of Community and Corporate Relations at the Vista Center for the Blind and Visually Impaired. A treasured aspect of Alice's work at Vista Center is to celebrate and foster the accomplishments of blind and low vision artists. And she recently launched an annual event to honor such artists. Alice also serves as co-chair of CCB's Governmental Affairs Committee and is immediate past president of Golden State Guide Dog Handlers. She's on the convention committee and is an active member of her local chapter, Silicon Valley Council of the Blind. Now I'm handing this over to Alice to have a conversation with Susan. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Linda. And I want to use that term, Madam Secretary. I kind of love that. So, yeah, well, um, Lisa and I have our own show, Madam Secretary. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, yes, it is my um, distinct pleasure uh, to be able to interview my friend Susan Glass. And um, in addition to the accomplishments that you heard in Linda's wonderful introduction, I always describe Susan as a Renaissance woman. Um, she She's a writer, she's a musician, she's a lover of nature, she fosters the arts through audio description, um, she's a birder, I know that there's a better word for that, um, but all of that comes together in this person who is so active in CCB and, and ACB. So today, we're going to have a conversation about um, really two very integrated uh, topics. One is Susan's love and fluency in Braille. And how it is that that has contributed to her life work um, as a professor of literature, as a writer, as a, a um, published author um, in her most recent chat book, The Wild Language of Deer. Um, so uh, let's, let's begin. Um, so, Susan, I know that um, in your years of, of growing up, you um, spent a great deal of time at the Santa Clara Valley Blind Center, which is now known as Vista Center, uh, San Jose, and they had a Braille library there. And so how did that place and those people influence you when it comes to your love and eventual fluency in, in Braille? Thank you, Alice. What a lovely question. And thank you, everyone, for um, inviting me to be part of this today. I'm so over the moon happy with this convention. It's hard to sit still, but I'll try. Um, yes, the Santa Clara Valley Blind Center, now Vista San Jose, had an enormous Braille library. It took up, I want to say, like two huge, long hallways. It was, it was enormous, floor-to-ceiling books. And it was um, staffed by volunteers who worked in the Braille Transcription Project who cataloged those books, hand-transcribed those books, or when possible, brought in books from other places. And I should add that this was a part of my life in addition to 
receiving talking books and also having receiving Braille books from the American Printing House and textbooks. The library um, is a very happy place for me. Um, people you know worked there. Andrea DeClotz's mom, uh, Judy DeClotz, worked in the library. My mother worked in the library. And my husband, John Glass's mother, worked in the library. I believe all three ladies were transcribers to some degree. I know that they all knew Braille. Um, and Andrea's mother and my mother used to open the library in the evenings after school so that we as blind kids could have the same experience as our colleagues did when they get out of school and be able to go to the public library at night. And I have a lot of happy memories of being in there with Andrea and Diane Harms and, and our friend Mickey Quenzer and John, you know, we'd be doing homework and say, I need to find the World Book Encyclopedia because I need this volume on George Frederick Handel, blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, it would be on a bookshelf and everything. Um, I even remember someone coming to watch us read one night. I don't remember what the occasion was. And it was very embarrassing because I was making mistakes. But anyway, um, it was a very happy place. Reading was an enormous part of our lives. Uh, My mother learned Braille. My grandmother learned Braille. My mother did homework assignments with me. She taught me how to write my own greeting cards in Braille. She had things brailled in the house, like my drawer would have socks brailled and underwear brailled. So I grew up, Braille was just a natural part of my life. It was always there. And in that library, uh, the early reading experiences that I had that were narrated were quickly translated into Braille. Um, I I imagine a number of you listening to this were read to by people. Um, And if they weren't the loved ones in your lives, they were perhaps the the talking book narrators. I don't know about you, but for me, a narrated, a book with a good narrator brings the, the euphoria into the book, but reading the book with my hands brings the cerebral brain power and the memorization into the book. It allows me to slow down. So my mother read me the famous E.B. White's Charlotte's Web when I was about five, and the vocabulary was beyond what I could read myself. But as soon as I was able to read it, I got my own copy of that book for Christmas, and I literally memorized the first half of the book. And it was in our library. Um, In that library, uh, we all uh, did our schoolwork. A lot of our school books that were were provided with there, my first uh, love of poetry with A Child's Garden of Verses, both the music and the book, started there, which I think connected the poetry music aspect. Um, there was a big collection of Robert Frost, and I remember my mother and I, she helped me do a project where I took the Braille poem Birches, and we embossed it, and then we built a model of bent birch trees, and I recited it from my freshman and high school class. This library was where we had cooking classes. Our first cookbooks were in Braille. Our ceramics book was in Braille. We learned to sew here. Um, It was a real community place, an anthology of people driven by love and by a volunteer spirit. And Alice, have I gone over? Is that what you're... No, that's perfect, as always, Susan. You just painted a picture and I could just see you, you know, uh, climbing through and finding, going to the card catalog and finding your favorite books and sitting in a corner and um, there with your friends, you know, as well. Um, And so your early days... 
as a writer uh, began when you were a child. And you shared with me a very lovely and fun story about when you were in the sixth grade and there was a writing contest and yeah. your determination at that point. Can, can you share um, that story? Oh, yeah. This, this was so much fun. So I was in the sixth grade at public school. We had a resource teacher whose name was Miss Cash. And Miss Cash taught all of us to type on manual typewriters because she said, this is how you're going to cross that bridge from Braille to typing. And it's how you get through college, whatever you do. And my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Dow, believed that all of us should be writers. And so every Monday, Mrs. Dow would give us a topic to write on for creative writing and we could write anything we wanted. And so it might be, I jumped in a time machine and, or um, my fairy godfather turned up and, or I took a trip to so-and-so and, and we were supposed to write these little stories, give them to her by Wednesday. And then on Thursdays, every Thursday, she would read all the stories aloud to the class and mm-hmm. we would vote as a class on the best ones. And I was pretty competitive, especially with the little boys, because they were writing all this adventure and I wanted to write adventure, but I was sort of bummed because... It was pretty obvious if Mrs. Dow was reading from my Braille copy because Miss Cash would have transcribed above it. Those of you who read Braille know it's on the big paper. I mean, I love all that stuff now, but I wanted to be like everybody else. And so Miss Cash said, you type your story, Braille it, and then type it. And then I will proofread it and correct the spelling errors for you or the typos. Because remember, we didn't have whiteout. We didn't have word processing. We didn't have any of those things. And I'm 11. You know, I'm how do you spell hospital? You know how we were. Um, and so we, I, I wrote these stories and Miss um, Cash did just that. And it was easier for Miss Dow to surreptitiously, they didn't know if she was reading typescript or handwritten. And so, you know, there all this handwritten stuff and I had this type story. And I remember this one time, it was my favorite contest. I wrote this story about going to an underworld cave and making friends with octopus and becoming a ruler of an undersea world. And I got voted the best story. And all the little boys were angry when they found out a girl had written it. They were really <laughs> mad. <laughs> and I, I was just so happy about that. It was a real sense of, of, um, of empowerment. And, you know, that was what a lovely mentorship skill for Ms. Cash to have demonstrated, for Mrs. Dow to have demonstrated. Um, and, uh, you know, later in high school, I wrote some pretty cheesy poetry. I hope nobody ever finds it. But my mother put it back, put it into a little tiny collection called As a River Flows and took me to a printer and we printed it because she said, this is what it means to publish. And I I hope the things left the planet, honest to God, but you know, these are the things that build us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Um, In in your bio, uh, we heard um, you had an amazing opportunity uh, to attend um, the, um, I guess guess it was a coalition of artists um, that were uh, together um, back in Massachusetts and you you were there. Um, Can you describe just briefly how it is that that shaped you as a writer? Sure, sure. Very much so. Um, That experience took place during July and August of 1977. Um, I had said to one of my UC Santa Cruz professors, I don't want to go home this summer. I want to do something unique. And he said, well, how would you like to go to an artist colony? And I said, well, sure. So he helped me put together an application and a story and some things. and And I got accepted. And I went and I lived for two months in 
a tool shed, which was my studio, in the Berkshire Hills in Western Massachusetts in a little town called Cummington. In whatever decade you live, step back 15 years, and that's where you are in time, even to this day, in the town of Cummington. Um, It's a place where they do maple sugaring. It's a place where they have real county fairs. It's a place where there are lots of little reading venues, and it's actually the part of Massachusetts where Slate Roof Press is. So I spent a summer there with a Perkins Brailler, um, some Braille books, a lot of Braille paper, and I met very interesting people. I met another poet whose name was Ron Atkinson, who was from Michigan. And I met uh, a composer of piano music whose name was Rip Rents, who also loved to read. And he ended up reading me Borges. And I met a singer named Janet who sang beautiful classical music. And she gave me a voice lesson for an amateur. And at the end of the summer, we compiled, we put all our artistic talents together. And we made this little show for everybody in the, in the colony. And what I got from that was the value of community, the value of anthology, the cooperation effect, um, which is, I think, why as a writer now, I'm less concerned with my books, although I'm very happy that I have one out now. I'm more concerned with what we do together as artists and what we create together as artists, because whatever you create is is built. Well, to, to finish answering your question, Alice, I came back from Massachusetts thrilled and determined to go back there. And so when it was time to go for a graduate degree, I applied and was accepted to the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, where I earned my MFA in English and where I received some of the finest instruction that one could ever receive. Um, there, there is a lot to be said. Please don't slap me, anyone, for being a snob. There is a lot to be said for some East Coast education. Uh, those professors held our feet to the fire. Uh, they, when, they, when we would teach classes, they would supervise us. They would tell us what we needed to do better. Um, uh, I, I remember being terrified by a professor who looked at one of my papers and said scornfully, do you know the difference between argumentation and exegesis? Whereupon I tried to hide because I just had to dig a hole and I still not sure. But anyway, um, the, the flip side of that was that I got a very fine education and as I was able to come back to California, which I could have done here too. We have wonderful schools and that's how my teaching started, but it's how I retained the tie to Massachusetts. And it's how, when the slate roof press writing contest opened up, I heard about that and I'll wait you know, for your question to ask about that. But that was a very formative um, okay. experience. It was really formative. My, my bi-coastal understanding of nature and the natural world came together. Um, a different way of listening to and being attuned to people occurred. Um, it was an astounding experience. And I was just stupid enough to try everything. When I look back on some of my time there, I'm very embarrassed but that's how we are, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think it's really important for anyone who is pursuing any element of, of the arts to reflect back and see what are the aspects that formed you, you know, as a writer or an artist, yeah. a, you know, a musician. Um, but there was another part that came out of that is your love of teaching. And yeah. so for many years um, as a professor in literature, you helped to uh, work with your college students to have them um, hone their own craft and, and find their own voice. So I'm curious how, as a, as a professor, a mentor, did you help others find their own voice as writers? Golly, I hope I did that. You know, one never mm. knows for sure. But uh, when I when I started out in 1983, 
And uh, Bob Acosta will probably remember these times, as will Judy Wilkinson, anybody who taught. Um, there was a big problem of how I was going to grade papers. And so there was a physical task there involved of having students both hand in papers that an assistant could help me with and also record what they wrote on audio cassette tapes. Now, pedagogically, that turns out to be very sound because when you're compelled to read your writing aloud, you tend to really listen to it and you tend to listen to what works and what doesn't work. And um, from that experience and from recording responses to students, um, I think I could encourage them, I hope, to honor their own voices. And I might say something like, this, this description of your cousin and what happened is very interesting, but I notice you're, you're speaking it a little tentatively and you stopped right in the middle. What else is going on there? And so there was a way to, to actually um, do that and, and honor that. So the very mechanics of having to do things more slowly and having to bridge audio um, and, and, uh, and typing and Braille and all that in the early days um, was, I think, useful. There, there were even classes where I had students do audio responses to each other essays when they were doing drafts. So it was part of peer editing. Okay, Alice, I'm going to, you're going to listen to my essay and you're going to write it. You're going to turn on the tape recorder and tell me what you thought of it. And so that was one way. Another way, um, and this became easier when I could bring quiet Braille computers in the class, not a clackety-clack Perkins Brailler, is that when I would give my students something to write, I would write too. Because I wanted them to see that we were all raw in our early places and that when things don't come out perfectly, they they come out stage by stage the way children learn to walk and talk. And so if I gave them some sort of a journaling prompt or some questions, I would write answers as well and we would we would share each other's. And I think that was that was a helpful thing too. Um the other thing that I liked to do was encourage students to talk about what they liked about their own work. And Many times, think about, think about any area in your education where you're new, you're a freshman, you're new at it, you're probably feeling like what you're doing is not so great. And so when your teacher says, tell me what you like about this, the first thing that would come out often was, well, I know that the, I, I know the spelling is terrible, or I, I, I know this wanders all over the place, I can't get it organized. And so I would say, wait, wait, let's talk about what's working. We'll talk about that organization. Come on, what do you like? And inevitably, people would eventually say, well, I thought the point that I made about, you know, why literacy rates are falling was was a good one. And I would say, absolutely, it is a good one. And then after they honored what they did, you know, I would encourage honoring that. And we would do that in, in peer groups, too, in classroom. I would say, now, when you respond to someone's writing, the first four comments or so have to be positive. What is working here? Then move to constructive. Even constructive is good. It doesn't have to be negative. And I think that that's a way of, of honoring um, what students do, um, encouraging them. If they were really, really good researchers, I might encourage them in a particular direction. Um, if there was a writing contest, I might urge them to, you know, to be a part of it. But voice was very, very important. Do you know that often when people hand in assignments, they won't put their name on them? Now, why is that? Let's think about it. It's fear, is it not? And I would say, this is, I, I want to respond to this, but who are you? You know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we would we would get folks to understand that, you know, own own what you have, no matter where you are. Is that answering it? Is that what you're driving at there? 
Yes, uh, absolutely. And and I think one of the things that just the takeaway from that discussion, and it's a good um, reminder or lesson, that whenever we're in um, collaboration with each other for any reason, it's to focus on the positive first and, yeah. and then the constructive. Yeah. Um, so let's switch a little bit and talk about the Slate Roof Press. Um, and I know that this is a very unique publishing uh, company in the way that they go about working collaboratively on um, producing um, the works of artists and how that works. And it sounds like it spoke right to you about your desire to work within community when creating um, when creating art. So can you um, talk a little bit about the process that Slate Roof Press uses when um, publishing? Sure, sure. So um, Slate Roof Press um, came into being in 2004. Um, it is based in Franklin County in Western Massachusetts. And it's, it's specialized, it's a member-run, member-operated nonprofit press. So the members of the press work together to help each other create and publish books. And the way they do this is that they have an annual um, contest that they call the Elise Wolf Prize, and they, they do a call for submissions. And usually the submissions are just from Western Massachusetts because they wanted to keep a local flavor. However, a few years ago, they decided they wanted to branch out, and that was why they put out a call nationally. And that's the um, contest for which I applied and, and happened to be chosen. But I want to keep focused on your question. So what happens with Slate Roof is that when a, when a person is chosen, that we're going to publish your book, they join this collective. And effectively, you are an apprentice. Um, you meet on a monthly basis with others of the, of the press. I met remotely by Zoom. And um, whoever's book is in progress, you listen to drafts. You make suggestions. If the, if the press is working on the artwork for that book at that time, the writer might bring in different kinds of paper and pass it around. Well, I'm thinking of this. I'm thinking of these photographs for my book. I'm thinking of these woodcuts. Or um, I'm thinking of this kind of type. And those discussions um, happen as well. Um, everyone helps select the pieces that go into a book, but each writer selects from the, the writer. There's usually seven or eight slate members operating at any particular time. So you pick a master editor and that person helps guide your book to publication. One of our members is a gentleman by the name of Ed Rayer and he is a printer. And I mean a master printer. He owns his own presses also in Franklin County. And his press is called Swamp Press, but all of the books are hand produced. And so what happens is um, that once you have selected your paper, your typeset, all of that, um, Ed uses a hand letter press, like a printing press, to create the covers of the book. Um, and then the, some people put their own art in. Some people have illustrations. In, in my case, Ed's partner, Heidi Meissner, did the illustration woodcuts for my book. And that's all put together. And then the books are hand assembled and what we call um, hand-stitched die cut. So instead of being stapled together, the books are hand-assembled and there's this beautiful thread that goes down the middle and you stitch it. You sew the book actually together. So from beginning to end, it's a very, it's a, it's a very beautiful uh, process. Um, I have a copy of, of my book on the desk and at some point, if anyone there wants me to, we are primarily a visual impaired audience, but I can kind of show you, I can describe, you know, how, how it's put together. But at Slate Roof, 
one of the things that we believe philosophically is that the poetry should be beautiful linguistically. It should be beautiful in its form. It should be beautiful in its voice. And everyone has a voice. And to that end, one of our most recent books um, was called Writing from the Broken Places. And it's an anthology of poems by people from the green in Greenfield, uh, Massachusetts, from the Northern Hope Recovery Center. And these are all people who were working with addiction and living with addiction. And so one of our poets who was, who was recovered himself mentored their book into being, midwifed it into being, and Slate Roof printed it. And we some poems are more raw than others, so we're more finished. But the idea is, who gets to speak? Everybody gets to speak. Um, and that includes those of us of color, that includes different sexual orientation, we have that representation. And Slate Roof is very committed to accessibility. And Alice, am I going on too long? With this no, part? you're doing fine. You're doing okay. fine. Okay, I'll just, I'll just finish this, this part of it. And so Slate Roof is, is very committed to accessibility. And so when we decided to put my book together, Ed and Janet, who were kind of my editorial team, and remember Ed's the printer, wanted the Braille to be a part of the artwork. And um, so what we did was cre- we created a book that on the, on the cover, there's a deer head that's just bursting through that, that Heidi illustrated. And then when you open up to the title page, the title, The Wild Language of Deer, appears in Mega Braille with mega dots. And it's, the dots are exactly in the shape of deer hoof prints. I mean, they, they, they fit inside the hoof prints. Then near the back of the book, no, right in the middle, there's a poem called A Cellist Brings Me Autumn. Ed, without a Braille printer, without anything, came up with a way to create a perfectly contracted UEB Braille poem, fold out, a duplicate of A Cellist Brings Me Autumn. And he and I were doing sending emails back and forth. He was saying, what's the contraction for this and that and this and that. They made this a part of the book so that it's an art object, but it's also an object that introduces touch to people who are thinking less about touch. We also created an audio CD of the book, which is now available. And in fact, we have audio CDs for three of our books. And our next project is to create Braille editions of all our books. Slate Roof wants to be a press that is accessible to anyone in, in any format. And we're creating prices that work, you know, that are, that are, that are the same, that kind of work for everyone. So an audio CD is $10, you know, the book is 17. We've, we've got a, a price range worked out, but the idea is in, in whatever way a voice is, can be made available to people, we want it to be available. We know that won't replace BARD or NLS or our great sources, but what it does is say to the world, Hey, everybody's a reader right? And everybody has a voice and poetry is a written, spoken thing. And I'm extremely proud of what our press has done. And um, as well as of all the skills I've learned, like being there, including how to become a blogger and how to vet manuscripts, which means how to select manuscripts. And I've learned things about art that I didn't know. I mean, it's just, it's been the most amazing four-year journey that I can ever um, imagine. Well, it really sounds like it's a match uh, made in heaven, um, both in who you are as a person and then what their mission is um, as far as Slate Roof. Um, So we're going to talk briefly about 
um, your love of nature, um, just how that's influenced you. And then that will then lead us into uh, you doing some selected uh, readings. So one of the things that um, I found when I heard some of your poetry is that you have the ability of taking all of the other aspects of um, what we experience in the world. So uh, what what does uh, what does something sound like? What does it feel like? What's the tactile? Uh, and so your relationship with nature comes out with these beautiful um, similes and ways that you can help us to understand what you're experiencing. So how has nature um, really influenced your you know your writing? Uh, I know it's influenced your life, but how has it influenced your writing? I think it was my first language because my earliest memories are sound memories. Um, and, and also my mother was a consummate naturalist. And so we would together, you know, we would be outdoors and I would say, what went zing? And she'd say, let me look. Oh, it's very bright. It's a tiny bird. Oh, this book says it's a hummingbird. You know, it looks a little bit like a blue jewel. Remember what I told you about blue yesterday? I had a mother who was a reader, a a born teacher. She loved rocks. She loved flowers. We spent a lot of time on our hands and knees, getting dirty, smelling things, picking things up. Um, You know, all all of that. Um, She was very much a, a person who paid attention to the natural world and she would take up the hobbies of her children. So when my sister was really into wildflowers, my mother got her wildflower books and went on flower pressing trips with her. And when I started really loving birds, my Christmas present one year were two braille books, hand taping wild birds and birds of your backyard or hand feeding or something like that. We made bird feeders together. We just, she said, she taught us to pay attention. And maybe because I was blind and I, I mean, I'm an active person now, but I think I spent a lot of my time observing. And as a little child, I just remember listening a lot to the world. Um, we had a, a cabin on Lake Erie and I remember a Saturday morning and I heard this little liquid that sounded like someone pouring milk and it turned out to be a special swallow called a purple martin. And I was listening to it at the same time as the lake outside the window. And I said, oh, now I know how wide the beach is because first that voice was over there on my left and now it's over on my right. So the sounds began to draw these sound pictures for me. And I think, you know, just I've always listened to sky. I've always listened to water. I've always listened to... Um, you can even hear sea anemones closing in a tide pool if you want to. And then it gets this great little popping sound. And I just, I, I was fascinated by all of that. And so when I started writing and, the, and Mother fed the appetite with the books about nature, it became natural to want to want to share that with other people, to make, to, to allow other people to feel that. And for me, writing poetry is less about self-expression and more about evocation evoking in other people, making it a shared experience. Um, and I, I, that's the best way I can describe it. I, I hope I haven't done a disservice. No, no, not at all. And I think when um, we move into your wonderful reading of your of your poetry, um, people will hear to, to recognize um, those aspects of nature and 
to hold them in your heart is one thing, but to put them down on paper and have other people be in that experience with you it is really an is really an art, and um, you know you're you're very very good at it. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to have the privilege of Susan selecting a couple of her poems and introducing the poem to us. So we'll learn a little bit about where that poem came from. And then um, she'll do a few readings. And then we're going to open it up for questions um, from the audience. Uh, we have writers. We have lovers of poetry. We have many people in the audience. So um, first we'll hear um, your wonderful poetry, and then we'll open Open it up for questions. Um, so this is the fun part, Susan. What, which one are we going to hear first? Well, I always like to start with with something that that is a nod to my mother, mm-hmm. um, my twin spirit. And one of the first things my mother did for all of us was teach us how to plant gardens. And um, for me, that was an experience in scent and in fear in a way, as you'll hear by the end of the poem, but also in great joy and in extreme companionship. And also the whole notion of creation of how did we get here? Who made us? What is, what is God made of? And there's God is alluded to here in this poem, but not in a religious sense, but in this other sense. So this is called June Bedtime Story. In the wild light before cataracts, God was marigold seeds sprouting from between mother's fingers, my first nursery to water and smell. Together we tamped the earth, our forearms and knees touching. She stood and I, piled God at your level with patchwork knees, listened to a wheelbarrow on stone, pulled by mother hands, earth-gloved and honest. The flapping burlap apron of mother lap, the snips, the trowel. God became dwarf plants and plastic six-packs and spiderweb roots clinging. And the seedlings begot evening, smelling of onions. I crouched in the basin our knees had made, unsure how seed graves could spawn life. Afraid of leaving them to their dark work. Afraid of running away. Ah, so I will do the applause since we have many people hopefully listening and they, hopefully they're clapping in their own room. So, uh, yeah, that's wonderful. Um, so, and, and I, like, go, ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, that, where, you know, that, that was that in that, in that experience, my mother was God. Because she knew this magic of growing things. The smell of the onions was God. The earth-gloved hands was God. Um, the six-packs, the child God at your level. With, you know, and it's, it's all this wondering. And then at the end, there's this promise. Well, there will be growth here, but you have to leave these things underground. Mm. But what is that but a story of resurrection in some way? You know, and you go, ah, but I'm afraid of the dark. But there you are, you know. So I wanted to get that child consciousness a little bit too um, and, and also kind of capture who she was. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Okay. So what's in store for us next? Why don't we do, we should probably do one of the bird poems. Because, oh, yeah, because then we get to hear you with um, your bird but, sounds. Because they're 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 funny. Well, should it be the wren or the flicker? 
I'll do the flicker today because usually I do the wren. Um, um, so this is called red shafted flicker. Uh, a red shafted flicker is a kind of woodpecker. We have four or five species of woodpecker in our area of California. And these particular woodpeckers are insect eaters rather than nut eaters. And what they do is they, they, um, well, you'll, you'll find out as you, as you read the poem. I mean, as you, as you hear the poem and it's, it's a little bit self-conscious because I was thinking of the structure of the poem as I was thinking about the bird. Red shafted flicker. We startle each other on a path in mid stanza where I'm scuffing through sycamore leaves thinking ankle acorn. The flicker has probably been hammering for ants or beetles. Pew! It calls, its voice sharp as an egg tooth. It flaps, glides, flashes unabashed its red underwings and tail. How large it is. He or she, can I know in October? Her spanned wings carry us into stanza two, where she lands on a quivering scrub oak tightrope and again calls, pew! Weeka, 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 weeka in April means one male yelling at his neighbor. But pew, a message for me. Don't disturb my anting. Your feet are loud. Here we are in stanza three. She's quiet. I'm thinking she won't climb the live oak's vertical slope as her cousins, the hairy and acorn woodpeckers will, leaning against their tails while they drill and stash seeds. She works her magic in the leafy cavities where larvae live. By stanza four, when she disappears, not for the night, I think, but from me, I ask myself what to do with the space she's left, her absent scuffling claws. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. That's absolutely amazing. Um, well, it's about 2.40 now. So I think what I'd like to do is um, turn it over. First, before we do Q&A, I think one of the questions that may be on many people's mind is how do they get their hands on the audio, the print, or both um, from Slate Ruth Press? So can you share that um, before sure. we go into Q&A? Sure, sure. So there, there are two ways um, to to uh, to get your hands on the audio and the uh, the book. And I'm going to switch to my other file because it, I have the, the price listings in there, and I don't want to be self-aggrandizing, but I want to give the correct information. Um, uh, you can either um, take your computer and uh, browser and go to info i n f o at slate roof press. S-L-A-T-E-R-O-O-F-P-R-E-S-S, all one word, uh, lowercase, dot com. And once you're on the site, you can see everyone's books and you can click on books and you'll see the wild language of deer and um, you can place an order. There's a, there's a downloadable form um, and there's another way to do it online. Alternatively, um, I am happy to take your orders. I can give you my um, email and I can do it for you. Um, and um, let me just... Alice, give me a minute to find this file because sure. I want to be accurate in what I tell people here. Are you going to be a nice computer or a naughty computer? We always <laughs> want to know, don't we? Um, okay, here we go. Uh, and I want you to know that I don't receive any of the money. Slate Roof is a nonprofit organization. And the whole purpose of publishing the books, we print 
um, 350 copies, and then we can print more if we need to. So all the proceeds go directly back to the press to pay back Ed Rayer for all the work he's done and, and then to, you know, go into the next book. So when you, if you pay me for one of these books, I want you to know Susan Glass is not going to take this and head off to Tahiti, which she couldn't on a poet's salary anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, all right, where did this go? Um, here we go. Um, but here's, here's the situation. Um, if you buy a CD only, it will cost you $10 and it does have a CD cover with all of the print information about each poem. By the way, a little plug for Steve Dresser and Junko Productions. Mm-hmm. You may know our, our dear friend, Steve Dresser, um, from Western, I mean, from, uh, Boston, Massachusetts, from Reading. Uh, I recorded the book in his studio. He was a superb engineer and audio artist, and he does all our slate roof books. Um, and, and we pay for his services as well. So we want to, I just wanted you to know how that happens. Uh, you can also just order MP3 copy of the book and I can uh, mail that to you. They're download files and that's only $8. Um, you can buy a book plus a CD for $22. The book is ordinarily $17, the print book. And you can add the, the five on for the, the, uh, the CD if you want to do that. Um, and I can give my email and my cell phone contact that would probably be the easiest for CCB members. I'm happy to ship things directly to you and work out how we pay, you know, like check or PayPal. Would, would that be appropriate? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Whatever you're comfortable with. Okay. So um, as I said, you can go directly to the website, which would be a really neat way for you to see what else Slate Move does. But um, my email address is S-U-S-A-N-C-G-L-A-S-S at att.net. My cell phone, and I'd love to talk to you, that's the easiest method of all, is 408-429-9567. If you decide you want anything, I will be very happy to work that out uh, with you. Um, So yeah, that's perfect. What a, yeah. what a generous offer, you know, to help people out. And um, I, 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 if you're interested in poetry, uh, first of all, Susan is an ama- amazing reader, as we have heard, um, for the audio. Um, but the, the tactile aspects of this of this um, chat book, when you open it, one of the poems is in Braille. Um, it, it's really beautiful. So I'm going to bring it back to uh, Linda uh, to open it up for Q&A. Okay. Uh, I think the host is in charge of that. You got yes, it. I can do that. Great. Absolutely. So, and thank uh, you. Before you start, I'm glad you answered the question about the MP3. I'm definitely going to get one of those. Thank yeah. You. Yeah. All right, Deborah Armstrong. So this is a question I think many amateur writers might be asking. And my experience when I took creative writing classes in the 90s was that You'd go into the class and everybody would pass their work around. And of course, I couldn't read their work. And the whole thing was inaccessible and depressing. And I didn't start taking creative writing until it was offered online. But I really miss being able to sit in a circle with people and share my writing. And I want to know how I can make that happen and yet not end up in an inaccessible experience. And I will go back on mute for my answer. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I do know that, that there is a, a writer's group um, that Deborah Kendrick is running and it has all kinds of subset. And I know it because Bob Acosta just sent me the information last 
or two weeks ago, and I've joined. And they have mystery writers section. They they have a poetry section. They have this, and they have a writing workshop that meets actually today, later on this afternoon, once a month. And you can email your work to everyone in the workshop ahead of time um, so that you have a chance to actually hear it. It is a Zoom workshop, Deb. It's not in person, but you do have that advantage, advantage of being able to read the work ahead, having people read on, you know, online together and give that uh, give that feedback. Um, writing workshops are run in many, many different ways. And uh, if you decide to go live again, I encourage you to find one that works for you. It's a little bit like finding a therapist. If it doesn't work, get out. You know, you got to want to make it really work. Um, if you join a workshop where people take work home, it's a good opportunity to educate people and say, well, I want to read your work. Can you email me this? Or can you give, you know, can you make arrangements for me to have this, you know, or send it be audio. Um, and then, um, and, and then you have it at the next workshop for many years. I was part of a poetry group where we would bring all our poems to the workshop that night and they were typed or, and, and so everybody would get a copy to take home and each person would read in the circle. And I was at the same disadvantage you were, Deb, of not having seen that work ahead of time. I did learn, I did, as you do, become a very good listener. Um, make the demands for what you want. I would bet there were others in this audience who have perfect ideas about writing workshops and recommendations. That's an excellent question. Mm-hmm. All right, so um, we have area code 650. Hello, Susan. Hey, Roger. <clears throat> Wonderful. Did you hear me mention you this morning? I, I did. My ears started burning. I had to go cool them <laughs> off. Thank you. <laughs> well, I just think, and I just want to also say, what was it you said about slapping you because you're too snobbish? The, the thing that came to my mind was to hug you because you're too impressive. Mm-hmm. But, um, <laughs> I just, I, I was crying. I, I just, you know, what I was saying this morning was what a crappy childhood I had. And, you're, well, and I said, it needs to be more like the Susan Glasses of the world. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't have been any writer if I had planned it in advance which I did not, by the way. That you can now, Roger. It happens that crappy childhoods are wonderful. (laughs) And it also happens that writing about them heals you. It's amazing. Just have to find the right compassionate readers. Um, I've been told for years you need to go deeper because there's stuff that I I refuse to mind. It's so important. I happen to know how brilliant you are and the depth of your historical knowledge. But I also know how difficult because you've shared it in our chapter, your experiences were, and I think people need to hear them. I think those are stories you need to write down, tell and share in, in whatever way we do. That's what our community is about. Mm-hmm. But you know, I didn't even learn to read. I mean, I didn't even learn to, to read for pleasure, really uh, to yeah. play in libraries and so forth. That's what I'm yeah. talking about. Yeah, it's a terrible grief, isn't it? Mm. I mean, yep. it's a heavy grief. It really, it's, it's, oh, yeah, I, I understand you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. All right, next um, we have Christy Crespin. Yes, I am asking this question on behalf of writers who have written books and have been fooled by the publishers. Oh. And they have many print books. And they don't know what to do with them. And so how did you 
um, how did you begin by, um, you probably had your book on the computer, but, you know, some of these are old enough that they don't even have the books on their computers anymore. They don't have the files. Um, can you talk about maybe some tips for um, some of these people to get their books published or accessible um, and how a person would go about getting um, their public published uh, files? Yes, I will share. I will do my best, Christy. Thank Angie, you. Annie Giappetto is the real powerhouse to talk to about this because she and the Behind Our Eyes Writing Collective are really working on helping people find their publishers and their voices. And so I'll tell you what I did, but I, I want you, I want us, you and me to talk to Anne because my experience was a little unique because I had that Massachusetts, tw- you know, I, I knew I wanted to right. do that, but, but um, there were some things I, I did to get there. Um, it is easier to research viable publishing houses and places now than it used to be before the internet. Before the internet, we all had to truck off to a library with a reader and pick up the writer's magazines. And it took forever. And sometimes the process made you Sisyphus and just laid down. (laughs) It it is much easier now to go online, to find narrative magazine or, or find Quicksilver or find uh, mother Jones or whatever it is you want to read. And there are a lot of e back issues. And the reason I'm bringing that up is that a key to publishing um, is to start small and grow into it. If you have a full length book, you start by releasing individual chapters or you take a story from an, you take a novel chapter and it becomes a story. You get yourself known bit by bit first. Um, and you do that in small pieces. And I did a lot of, you know, sending individual poems to anthologies. And so getting to know what's out there and finding a style that sounds like you is the way to go. So if you have a book and you think there's a particular publisher, um, you know, that, that might like that book, that's a place to go. Um, there's a, a poetry publisher that I love very much called Milkweed Editions. And they do a lot of work by one of my favorite people, Ted Kuzer. Um, mm-hmm. And I would go down on my knees and thank the goddess if I could be published by them. But I, I watch what they do. Um, beware, beware, beware of what are called vanity presses. You will know a vanity press because what they will say is, we will take your book and we will market it and we will take it here and we will do this and that. Give us $700 up front. And you give them your $700 and they send you all these copies, but there's no marketing help. And there you are with the situation you described. Um, any press that wants to work with you will not insist on taking any money from you. And if you're really, if they really, really want you, they may offer you an advance. I've never been offered an advance and I don't really mind because I'm a lowly poet. We don't really get advances very often. Um, but that would, that would be very, very important. I think, because my answer is so limited, Christy, I think that it would be useful for CCB to have some sort of a seminar where we invite people like Annie Chipetta and we invite yes. people from the, from the Writers' Collective to come in and help us with these questions. Because I got there by a rather circuitous road. It might not be everybody else's road. Mm-hmm. I would also, I'm going to say this, and I don't care, I'm a big dreamer. I would mm-hmm. like CCB to publish a creative writer's anthology. 
Oh my would goodness, like that would be, be so cool. Yeah, I would like it to be statewide. I would like it to be essay, editorial, commentary, memoir, vignette, poetry. Um, and I think when we're back into fundraising, it would be. I good. was just going to yeah. say it would also marketing. be a fundraising opportunity. And, and you could get me. You know, people know I dodge some work because I'm becoming this introverted person writing more, but that's, that's something I'd get on board. Christy, I'm so sorry. Cause I don't think I answered you justly. I just answered you from what I knew. I think you did a great job and I appreciate you, Susan. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, All right. Do we have any more questions? We, we do. Next we have Diane Harms. Hi, Susan. Hi, Alice. Hi, Diane. Hey. Nice to I, hear um, you. Yeah. Thanks. I am. Um, wow. Susan, that brought back memories about the, being at the blind center. Wednesday oh, night, yeah. you know? Oh, yeah. 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 Wasn't that fun? It was. And yeah. I remember one night, my mom had had an operation. And, um, you know, she was tired. And she really didn't want to go down there, you know, because she was tired and didn't really want to drive. But I wanted to go so bad. So she took me. And, you know, it was just, we had so much fun there. We really did. And By any chance, Diane, do you remember one of the books you read from that blind center? I do. I'm curious to know if you remember a title. I do. You don't have I to. remember um, I wanted to read The Godfather. Uh-huh. First, we couldn't find it um, because someone else had checked it out. And then they had brought it back, but we couldn't find it. They didn't put it back in the right place. And oh. that was that night where my mom was so tired. And your mom found it. And she said, oh, look at her smile, me smiling, you know. (laughs) So I wanted to read that, you know, and it it was, that was a soft cover book. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Most of them were, weren't they? Yeah. 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 And And my mother, my mother taught me to be a librarian. She taught me how to catalog, how to organize, how to write reviews. I mean, you know, those were Dewey Decimal days, but, you know, that was my first unpaid job. We'd work in the library and then go eat falafel. It was great. (laughs) So I'm going to bring it back to a person. Um, Are there any other hands raised before we wrap up? Judy Wilkinson has her hand raised. Hey. Uh, Oh, Susan, I've got to tell you, the poem I'm going to want to read first when I get your book, Being a Cellist uh, Mm. in my ancient youth, I have to be able to read The Cellist Brings Me Into Autumn. I am so intrigued. I did um, not know you played the cello. Now you are drafted to play for me at, at some oh, point. Oh, no, no, no. This was way, be, way back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that, that's but the anyhow. poem that's railed, even in the print book. It's right there because oh, you can fit it on the page. <laughs> yeah, okay. Susan, I have, but I do have a serious question, which is, have you attended writers' conferences and found those useful in any way? You know, I don't think I have. I attended a lot of educators' conferences, as I'm sure you did. I may be going to the Associated Writing Programs Conference next year, which is in Seattle. My fear is conferences can be really scary when you can't see, unless they are accessible Mm -hmm. like ours. Um, And Associated Writing Program is huge. There's thousands and thousands of people, and there's things going on in 20 different rooms. And then if you want the other one, you got to go across town. And I get really afraid and I, I sort of panic in loud environments. I, I think if you go to a writer's conference, you should go with, and I'm, I hope this doesn't 
make people upset with me who want to do everything as blind folks. I think if you can go with someone who can see Mm -hmm. and who shares your passion, it's really important because that person can navigate the signage, the noise. When I would go to education conferences with my colleague, Julie, we would split up. She'd go, okay, you do this seminar. I'll go to that one. And then she'd pick me up and we'd talk about it. Does that make sense, Judy? It's- oh, and all too, all too well. And maybe ironically, this is where Zoom turns out to be a benefit. Yes, uh, frankly, yes. so many conferences. But I, I attended for years a writing women's workshop at Skidmore College uh, Ooh, nice. in New York, yeah. and became very active in that. Um, but you know, found that I only could you know contribute so much. But I find, I think, a small conference or a Zoom conference, but I just thought I'd pick your brain. Thank you so much for being here, and Susan, we're so proud of you. Thank you, Judy. I know how much you write, and I'm so proud of you as well, and just proud to be part of CCB. Yeah. What can I say? Yeah. So so our time is up. I know that we're going to be moving on to another wonderful writer. Um, but in our closing, um, one of the things that I would like to peek, uh, Susan talked about um, creating a, a writer's group and publishing. And we have so many talented people in CCB. And I think finding ways for bringing um, individuals who either write um, or celebrate music or any of those things together um, for for evenings, um, whatever in person or in Zoom. That to continue to really stretch that part of us because it does it does feed us. I agree. Um, so I am uh, so thrilled to have this time with you, uh, Susan. I treasure you as a as a friend and as someone that I always get inspired by. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to Linda um, for um, wrap up or into our next session. Thank you. Oh, a little of both, ladies. Thank yeah. This is fabulous. So two ideas. Came. Well, I have an idea that I'm going to throw out, but we have an idea to start a, a writer's group or create an anthology. Certainly those of us on the publications committee want a piece of that action. You bet. Um, I, oh, it, of course, Susan is on the publication committee, so it makes it even easier. The, the idea I have is that I think CCP should have a poet laureate. Ooh. And I'm going to look in the po- into the possibility of how we can make that appointment happen. So I thank that. you, ladies. Thank you. And, and um, yeah, more, wow. more later. Thank wow. you, Susan. Oh, thank you. What a thank lovely you. idea. Yeah. You know, and maybe we could make it a writer laureate too. I mean, there's we got great storytellers, but I, I love where you're going with this. It's wonderful. We'd be the good. first affiliate who had one. Right. So um, that'll be good. And um, so thank you, ladies. And it's time for us to move uh, to our next um, presenter. Um, is Kelly here? Yes, I am. Hi. Hi, Kelly. I remember uh, talking to you last year. Um, <laughs> and um, also, uh, thank you very much for presenting for the um, California Library users recently, Kelly. The fabulous presentation about um, self-publishing and how she, you go about that. So let me um, introduce you, and then we'll get going. Um, Kelly Brick, Brinken. 
break in half, right? The Cassandra Sato mystery series that includes three books and two short stories. Her children's picture books, Never Mind, Farts Make Noise, and her newest, see if I can get this right, My Dog, Koa. <laughs> awesome. That was perfect. <laughs> Featured Duke, the deaf dog, and are illustrated by her sister, Teresa Murray. Um, these books have quickly become popular with children, parents, and educators for promoting inclusive conversations about children who are deaf or hard of hearing. Um, Kelly is an American Sign Language interpreter um, whose motivation to learn um, ASL began in high school uh, when she wanted to converse with some of her deaf friends. Kelly and her husband live with their hunting dog mm. uh, in Nebraska. Um, so, um, Kelly, welcome back. Uh, so now all you boys and girls and all the genders in between, pull up your chairs in a circle, and <laughs> Kelly is going to read to us about Duke, Duke the Deaf Dog. Thank you so much, Linda. That was awesome. And, you know, I know I, I volunteered to read my book, but I have to say I've been listening to the last 15 minutes or so of Susan's presentation, and I wish I had signed on earlier because it was so fascinating. And you guys asked great questions, and you got me super excited about a few things. So if you don't mind, before I start reading... Um, I just wanted to, I guess, just say a couple things about, um, I love the idea of an anthology from CCB. I think that is so cool. And it kind of fits with last year um, when I spoke to everyone, I talked about how the world needs your story. And you all do have, um, you know, a lot of writers in your midst. And some of you are further along down the path than others. And an anthology is a great way for a person to get their um, foot in the door with being a published author for the first time. Um, it's good because you can write a shorter piece and uh, get it included. And then also the promotional opportunities, you know, I'm self-published and so I have to do, I have to wear all the hats. I have to wear the marketing, accounting, uh, editing, uh, you name it, make graphics, like all the stuff. I have to do all the stuff. So if you have a group of people in an anthology, they can all promote it together. And your reach of people that you know and people who want to support you is larger. And so an anthology is a great idea. I, I just love it. I absolutely love it. Um, another thing that uh, Susan had mentioned was... Um, letting uh, releasing chapters at a time if you have a work in progress and it's been edited or you've had like other people read it so that you know that the quality of it is good um there's a a self-publishing platform called kindle vela v-e-l-l-v-e-l-l-a and it, it's a serial platform so it's associated with amazon and 
Um, their publishing arm is called Kindle Direct, so KDP, Kindle Direct Publishing. And they have a thing called Kindle Vela, and you can release a chapter at a time. So if you have, you know, a 20 chapter story, you could do it for 20 weeks. You decide how frequently you want to uh, publish it. And then you get supporters and it people, uh, you know, like it and support it and they pay a fee to belong to Kindle Vela. And then you get part of that fee based on how many people read your story. So it's kind of a really low risk way to get your work out there if you have work that you want to share with people. And the people who are, you know, interested in what you're writing are are there and they'll read it. You know what I mean? So um, sometimes the barrier to publishing seems really large that you have to have um, an agent and a publisher and an editor and all these people approve it. But really that's not always the case. If you have a story that you want to share, sometimes even on a smaller scale, like Kindle Vela, you can get your, your book out there or your chapters out there. So that's another option. And then the um, question about the conferences is a really good question. And I loved um, Susan's answer because I have been to um, the Nebraska Writers Guild, we have a local state conference every year, but I think we actually open it up to people from outside of Nebraska. And um, it has really, I don't know, I think really good speakers. And as a writer, it's so fun to be with your people. Like like I said, just listening to the end of Susan's talk, it's like, I just, it resonated so much with me because we're all just like writing geeks and reading geeks. And it's so fun to uh, listen to other people. We all just get nerded out together. And so being at a conference is really exciting because you're with all these people who are like your people. Um, so I've been to the Nebraska Writers Guild and I've been to one, a big mystery, because I write mysteries, right? So I've been to a really big mystery convention called VoucherCon. And it's uh, this summer, I believe it's in Minneapolis. It travels each year. But because of the pandemic, they have started doing, the last two years were online. And I think some of it, they're starting to do hybrid. So when I went, it was in Dallas and it was in person. And she is right. It was overwhelming. There's like 6,000 people who would go and they're all avid readers. And about, I think 1,200, maybe 2,000 of them are writers, but all the rest are readers who love to read mysteries and crime fiction. And it was so fun to go to the panels and to listen to like famous authors. I mean, James Patterson was there. Um, I just, I could name all kinds of people. It was wonderful. So if you get the chance to do something like that, it's really fun. But yeah, it is kind of overwhelming. And I can see how um, being with a sighted person or going with some friends so that you have, um, I guess, people to talk to afterwards and people to meet up with for meals and you know that kind of thing and helping you get around I think that that is good because it's kind of overwhelming there there are a lot of people there but if you get the chance to go to a conference actually every year there's a conference called left coast crime and um gosh I'm not you know I'm from Nebraska so I don't know California geography super well I can't remember what town I'm sure one of you will tell me what town left coast crime is in, but they just had it like a couple weeks ago. Mm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're going to have it. So um, 
what's cool because it's in California and it's all, it's another mystery writers convention and mystery readers who like to read mysteries. So if you live in the area, you should check out Left Coast Crime because that's a smaller convention. VoucherCon is by far the largest crime fiction convention. If you like to read mysteries or crime fiction, you should check out Left Coast Crime. Um, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I digressed from my original topic for the day. Okay, now you can pull up your, your chair and sit crisscross applesauce on the floor because we're gonna do story time. So if you were at the library users meeting last year, I read my first Duke the Deaf Dog book, which was called Nevermind. And then Sarah, thank you for asking me back today. Sarah asked me to read the second book, which is a favorite of five-year-old boys and girls everywhere. It's called Farts Make Noise. The reason I wrote Duke the Deaf Dog ASL books is because I've been an ASL interpreter for more than 30 years, and I've seen firsthand that there just aren't enough books for young children that have deaf characters. I really, really believe that every child should learn a little ASL so they can include their deaf classmates and friends in conversations. Farts Make Noise is geared for children ages three to nine, and throughout the pages of the story are a deaf college professor, are photos of a deaf college professor named Amy Wellman teaching children how to make some basic ASL signs. The main character's name is Duke, and he's a deaf dog. He's an orange English spaniel, and he wears a small hearing aid over one of his ears. Everyone in Duke's family can hear except him. And as you can imagine, that can be a big challenge for him. The idea for Farts Make Noise came from a funny thing that happened um, between two of my coworkers. One is hearing and the other one is deaf. So my hearing coworker had a virus and this was long before COVID, but she lost her sense of smell for several years. One day, my coworkers are sitting next to each other talking, and my deaf coworker is a really funny guy who loves to crack jokes. And he signed, Haha, I just farted, but you can't smell, so you don't know that I farted. And my other coworker told him, uh, No, I didn't smell anything, but I could hear it. They both laughed so hard because he didn't realize his fart was loud enough to hear. And that is what kind of gave me the idea for this story because, you know, um, kids that are deaf need to learn things that are polite and things that are not polite. So even if you can't hear the noise, you have to be aware that you're making noise. So that's what this book is about. Now, today is my first time reading this with the audio description. So I hope you enjoy hearing Farts Make Noise. Um, that I wrote and my sister Teresa Murray illustrated. So I'm sharing my screen right now. And if that helps you to see the photos um, or the illustrations, then great. And otherwise, I'm going to describe them so you're good to go. First thing, I want to read the dedication because I think you're going to get a kick out of it too. I dedicated the book to Dave and our children. We have four, Joe, John, Kate, and James, and there we have two of them that are married, so Claire and Colton. Before you all came along, I would never have considered placing the word farts on a book cover. 
So let me describe the cover. Um, Duke is an orange English spaniel. He's standing sideways on a patch of grass on his two hind legs. He's looking over his right shoulder and his eyebrows are raised a little. On his left ear is a blue hearing aid. Also in the grass area at the bottom is a green inchworm with an orange tummy. The upper half of his body is upright. He has wide open eyes looking away from Duke and six little legs. The top two legs are waving around and his mouth is open in a gasp. There are a few flowers in the grass, but they're falling over and wilted looking. On a blue sky background is the book's title, Farts Make Noise. Now, one thing to know about this book, all the dogs in the book look like dogs, but they act like people, which means they stand on their back legs, they wear clothes, and they speak English or they sign in ASL. So flipping to page one, Duke sits at the kitchen table eating breakfast in the morning from a bowl of cereal. There's a cereal box on the table along with his plate with toast and an apple. He's reading the back of the cereal box while he eats breakfast. On the wall behind him, there's a window. Outside is a tree with a couple of little doves nestled into a tree branch. On the windowsill is his little worm friend laying on the windowsill, kind of looking bored. The ASL photo on the page is of Amy doing the sign for morning. And the words say, in the morning, I ate my cereal. Next page has two small pictures. One is Duke finishing his cereal and he's scraping the spoon on the bottom of the bowl. Next to him, his mother says, scoop your cereal without scraping the bowl. Banging on the dishes is loud. In the next scene, Duke puts the silverware into the dishwasher. The photo on this page is the sign for school. It says, I helped my mom do chores before school. Except if you look at the picture, Duke just drops his stuff into the dishwasher. His mom stands nearby and she grimaces. Mom said, be gentle. Dropping forks and spoons is loud. The next page, Duke is in school. On the left side, there's a classroom with two long tables. Four dogs sit in each row, and each dog has a piece of paper and some colors in front of them. The dogs are different colors and breeds, like a poodle, a Boston Terrier, and a beagle. Standing in front of the class is his tall teacher, who's a yellow lab. The teacher wears a tie and glasses, and he's giving them directions for what to write on their paper. Some of the students watch the teacher, and some look around. Duke's elbow rests on the table, and he's looking off to the side and tapping his crayon on the table. He looks bored. It says, my teacher was talking during pre-K. I felt fidgety. The next page shows the teacher near Duke's seat. His hand rests over Duke's hand, and the teacher says, please stop tapping your crayons. Repeating noises bother people. On the back of Duke's chair, we see the inchworm standing near Duke's shoulder, watching the teacher scold him. The photo on the page shows the sign for bother. Next is still in the classroom, but on the back wall, a fire alarm is ringing. The light is blinking and there's lines around the alarm to show that it's beeping. It says our school had a fire drill. 
the teacher holds a clipboard. Some of the kids have their hands over their ears or their eyes are squinted up because it's very loud. Duke's eyes are really wide, so it must be loud enough that he can hear too. The sign on the page is for fire alarm. The next page says the alarm beeped, the light flashed, and we moved quickly. Fire alarms are very loud. The drawing shows a line of six dogs walking out of the classroom. Some of them are serious. One has his paws plugging his ears. There's a poodle with little yellow bows in her hair who walks on her tippy toes. And there's a couple of yellow labs. They file down the hallway to go outside for the fire drill. Next, we're in the hallway again, but the dogs are walking back into the classroom. The teacher stands next to the door, checking names off his list on his clipboard. A little chihuahua waves hello to the teacher. A bulldog is next. And then lastly, Duke is just smiling. The next page says, when we walked back to the classroom, my teacher said, pick up your feet when you walk. Your feet make noise shuffling on the floor. The teacher in the picture shows Duke how to pick up his feet while he walks. If we go back to the previous page, we now notice that Duke was dragging his feet on the ground as he walked. Next, Duke, his two brothers, and his mom walk down the sidewalk with grass on either side. It says, we walked my brothers home from school. Duke's brother shows him a school paper, and Duke signs good. His oldest brother wears glasses, and they both have backpacks. Mom is last in line, wearing a purple dress with hands in her pockets. Next to the older brother, we see a butterfly. And then on the corner by the grass are pink flowers with some bees on the flowers. It says bees buzz, but they are quiet. The next page shows two butterflies and one of them lands on Duke's nose. Duke asks, what noise do butterflies make? His mom says, uh, butterflies don't make any noise. There's a smaller drawing showing Duke holding the butterfly gently in the palm of his hand, and they're all looking at the butterfly. Next, they're walking up the front stairs to go inside their house. Mom stands on the top step, and she has the door open. The oldest brother walks next to Duke, and his face is all squinched up like, yuck. The brother behind him points and laughs. The words say, my brother said, oh, you farted. Mom said, say excuse me. Duke's foot is on the step and his teeth are kind of clenched a little bit. We see a green cloud coming from the back under his tail. On the ground, his little worm friend looks like he got too close to the green cloud. His eyebrows are up and his hands are in the air. He's trying to wave away the green cloud. Duke said, huh? It didn't stink. How did you know? Um, on that page, Amy makes the sign for stink, which is just holding your nose. That's how you do the ASL sign for stink. Duke's brother pats him on the back and says, farts make noise, bro. I said, oh, excuse me. Then I laughed too. Next, Duke crouches down in front of the oven. Instead, inside the oven is a pizza baking. The words say, at dinner time, the pizza in the oven smelled so good. I hadn't eaten since lunch. The photo shows the sign for smell. 
In a smaller giant, his mom talks to Duke and asks, are you hungry? Duke says, yes, how did you know? Mom said, I heard your tummy growl. In the next page, Duke stands alone and puts his hands on his kind of pudgy tummy. The worm is on Duke's shoulder with his eyebrows up in the air like, wow. The caption says, I didn't know my tummy made noise. Now Duke's mom, dad, and his two brothers eat dinner at a round table with pizza, salad, and cups on the table. His middle brother's mouth is open and his eyes are slightly big. Next to him, mom has one hand on the side of her head. Her eyes are closed and she looks exasperated. The other brother is laughing. Underneath the table, the worm sits at a tiny table with a white tablecloth and a rose. Duke passes a lettuce piece down to the worm under the table. And the text says, dad told my brother, no burping at the dinner table. Say, excuse me. My brother said, excuse me. I didn't hear him burp. It didn't bother me. The picture on the page shows this sign for excuse me. Next, they wait in line at the movie theater, giving their tickets to the usher. And there's a couple of movie posters on the wall. It says, we went to a movie. The photo shows the sign for movie. The four dogs sit in movie theater seats facing the screen before the movie starts. On the big screen, there's a box of popcorn, a hot dog, and a drink, dancing and singing. Duke's brothers talk before the movie starts. It says, during a movie, my brothers whispered. When I was little, I thought whispers were just moving your mouth. Whispers make noise, but they are quieter than indoor voices. Then we see them on the front, from the front, sitting at the movie. Each one has is holding some food. There's red licorice. Duke holds a bag of candy and his brother has a box of popcorn. Duke's dad has his finger up to his lips like, the sign on the page shows the sign for careful. The words say, dad signed and whispered, rappers make noise. We opened them carefully. Next, while everyone's watching the movie, Duke signs wow to his brother. And his brother signs, yes. And the text at the bottom says, sign language doesn't make noise. It doesn't bother anyone. Next, all four dogs are in the car in a parking lot. It's raining and puddles form in the parking lot of the movie theater. Dad has his hands on the steering wheel and everyone looks out the car windows at the rain. The words say, when, the, when dad drove home, it rained. Hard rain makes a tapping noise. In the back seat, Duke and his brother have big eyes. Duke looks startled, and in the back window, a big lightning bolt flashes. The words say, lightning flashed a bright light in the sky. I felt a big kaboom. The, sign, the photo shows the sign for lightning. Next is a side view of them driving while the rain falls hard on the car. Duke asks his brother, what noise does lightning make? His brother says, lightning is quiet, but thunder is loud when it is close. The photo shows the sign for quiet. The last page shows Duke lying in his bed. His head is on the pillow and his eyes are closed. 
a teddy bear is tucked under his arm. On the night table next to the bed, Duke's hearing aid sits in a box. The worm has his own little bed made from matchsticks. His pillow is over his ears. Outside the window, we see a backyard tree and some grass. It's still raining, and there's a big lightning strike in the distance. The words on the page say, thunderstorms don't bother me. Do any noises bother you? And that's the end of the story part. And the cool thing about, one of the cool things about the Duke books is that after the story, there's resources for teachers and caregivers about deaf culture and etiquette. Several of my deaf friends also shared their experiences about things that made noise that they didn't know until someone told them. And I want to share a few of those things with you. So now if you've ever hung around with deaf people, you probably saw some of these rules for deaf, or you probably know about some of these rules for etiquette in deaf communities. If you're with a group of deaf people and they want to get someone's attention across the room, a lot of times they'll flash the lights off and on a couple times to get people's attention. Or sometimes they stomp on the floor a couple of times, or they'll even pound on the table a couple of times to get the person's attention across the floor. So we have a list of do's and don'ts. A couple of the don'ts are um, don't stomp too many times. Uh, Don't throw things at people. Like you don't throw cups or pencils to try to get someone's attention. And you don't turn the lights off and on a bunch of times or just turn them off. Another thing people don't think about is if you stand in front of a bright light or a window and you try to sign, no one can see the signing because the light makes your body look black and you can't see the signing in front. So that's another deaf etiquette thing. And one more thing that Amy mentioned in her article about etiquette is that deaf children and adults need to feel safe and comfortable at home and in school. That's a deaf community. So when they go out to, you know, hang out with other deaf people or if they're in school or social things, you shouldn't scold or tell children to be quiet when they use their voices because they're signing or if they make noises that are louder than people in public because those are safe spaces. Now, kids do need to learn what things make noise and they do need to learn how to be polite, but you also have to think about like where it is. So if it's out in public, then it's good to teach deaf kids or hard of hearing kids how to act. But if it's in a safe space, then people shouldn't scold them for that. The last thing I wanna share with you is just a few of the stories from my deaf friends, because these are awesome. Um, One friend of mine, his name is Robert. Every morning he would arrive at work and he would drop his vehicle keys on his desk. He never thought about it once. It was just his habit. And one morning a guy stopped in his office right after he arrived at work. And he asked his coworker, how did you know I just got here? And the coworker said, when you drop your keys on the desk, we can hear you. And from then on, Robert comes into the office and he gently sets his keys on his desk because he doesn't want the whole office to know that he has arrived. (laughs) Um, A second story. This one's hilarious. This is my friend, Ryan. He says that he was a beta tester for a company testing wristbands that vibrated when the wristband detected a sound. So depending on the sound's frequency, the wristband would vibrate more or less. 
and he would know I, noises like running water or a dog barking, loud things like that. What he did not know was that when it when Ryan peed in the toilet, if he peed right into the water of the toilet, his wristband started going off, like vibrating really loud to tell him that his, that noise was loud. So he decided to move a little bit so that when he peed, it landed against the side of the toilet away from the water. And then his wristband stopped vibrating. And so he thought, oh my goodness, I'm 30 years old. And I just found out that peeing in public makes noise. So he thought about all the times before that he had peed in public and what were people thinking that he was so loud. That was funny. Another friend of mine, her name's Gina, and she told me that when her son was younger, he would keep saying, the car is clicking. And Gina didn't know what he was talking about. She was worried that something was wrong with her car until later she realized that the left and right blinkers made noise too. She didn't know that. Um, I think that's all the stories that are in there from the, the deaf, my deaf friends. And so that is the end of Farts Make Noise. But if anybody has any questions or wants to ask anything, um, let's, let's do that. All right. So let's have, uh, is it Desi? Desi. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So could you uh, see if there are any hands? There are no raised hands at this moment. I, I have a quick oh. comment. This is Rob. Yeah. yeah, I just remember it was kind of funny. I had gone to a CSUN conference, in fact, and I, I didn't realize it, but I made, I had this really huge yawn and I didn't cover my mouth. And somebody from across the room said, Rob, <laughs> you know, you're yawning and you really, that's not quite right. And so it's just like one of those, it kind of reminds me of that situation with, with the deaf, you know, where you don't necessarily think about the visual aspect of it. Exactly. I think it's exactly the same thing. That's great. That's a perfect example of like, you're just living your life, not realizing that other people might have a judgment about something that you're doing. So that's yeah. a perfect example. <laughs> Thank you. Nicolette. Hi, um, you can call me Nikki. This has been wonderful. This has been wonderful. Um, I do a group called Storytime on Well Connected, which is another organization for elderly folks, blind and sighted, as is uh, CCB and ACB. Um, And so we have a story hour a couple of times a week. And because my voice kind of gives out when I first started doing this, I got other people to join in and read what they've written or read stories that they, they enjoy. And it's my favorite program. I facilitate several of them. But... Um, in Well Connected, we also do an anthology because we have a writer's group. So if anybody reads anything during that group, they get a chance to have it in the anthology. And it hasn't been printed elsewhere, but it is sent to all the members of the Well Connected. And it's done rather simply. And that's something we could perhaps start out doing. You know, we don't necessarily have to have it published, but we could send it by email. Um, they used to send it in the folder, but it got too expensive, so now they email everything. And so that works really well. Um, and in terms of the ASL, my daughter, uh, who's now 45, but she was working at John Muir Hospital in, um, in uh, Concord. And she decided 
that she was going to learn it because there were a lot of deaf patients coming in and she worked in the dispatching office. And I think that there are definitely some schools in this country who are, who are uh, teaching it, but I think it should be more. And also, um, I've been volunteering with blind organizations for many, many years. And I took my granddaughter when she was in third grade with a bunch of people from the White House in San Francisco to her school. And they divided up three third grade classes into two classrooms. And we had two guide dogs and we even had a singer. And so when we went in, the principal said, because I was very active in school, the principal said, well, you know, we'll probably, they'll probably last for about 20 minutes. So <laughs> an hour and a half later, <laughs> we were still going strong. And, and I tried to get the lighthouse to continue that, but it just, it just didn't work when the, when the person who was running those activities um, was let loose when we had a new CEO. It wasn't possible to do that anymore. But we do have a wonderful, wonderful person in CCB San Francisco, Ellie, and she works in the schools and she's doing an amazing job. But I think that we should, what, that's one of the things that we should push, push for is having information in the early grades. Because when, people, when the kids were asking all these questions, they weren't being nasty, they weren't being rude, they were curious, they wanted to know, and they were fascinated. And I think that if we started with the young people, we wouldn't have a lot of the problems that we have right now because one of my friends regularly gets beaten up on Market Street and has her cane taken away from her because she's tiny. And, you know, that kind of stuff is just inexcusable. And I don't know whether learning earlier would help much, but I just think that we need a lot more education in the fields that we're dealing with, blindness and deafness, absolutely. So thank you very much. Sorry, I went on. No, thank you. Thank you, Nikki. And I couldn't agree. I mean, 100%. Um, I think that young children are fascinated by things that they don't know about. And they just want to learn more about how people get around and how people do things. And, um, you know, that curiosity, once they have the information from a real person who experiences it, you know, I think it develops uh, understanding and empathy and experience. I think sometimes people act in negative ways because of fear and ignorance. And so if we can start from a young age exposing children, you know, a lot of children are mainstreamed nowadays. And so the other children are exposed to different types of, you know, behaviors and disabilities and all kinds of things now. And so why not have, you know, blindness or deafness or braille or cane travel like why not have those be or service animals that's a great idea I, I I would love to see more of that in the schools all right uh next we have call in user one hi my name is Christine Bailey I'm in Riverside California Riverside California has a deaf school my granddaughter half brother is deaf and so she She's learned to do sign language to communicate with him through the deaf school and stuff. So she, at the age of 17, was working at Taco Bell. And the lady was deaf and, couldn't, and didn't know what was going on. She, my granddaughter, started signing to her, and she was shocked. She knew how to sign. At the end of the order, she ended up putting a $5 tip on the counter <laughs> her for signing her order to her. Exactly. Exactly. Like 
you you folks know what it's like to go out into the world and have people you know react negatively or not know what to do or what to say and be worried about doing the wrong thing and that happens to deaf people all the time too um you know a lot of deaf people don't think of themselves as disabled they just think there's a communication barrier like you speak one language we speak a different language and so it's it's breaking down those communication barriers i think if more people just knew a few signs and weren't afraid to use them. I think that's wonderful. And yeah, deaf people are loyal. So if they know a restaurant has people who can sign or a business has people who can sign, they will go there because they know that they'll be treated well. So that's cool. That's a great story. Yeah, and also the Marie Calendars here in Riverside hires the, the, the deaf school in their kitchen to work in their kitchen to learn culinary skills. That's a good idea too. You know, I've actually, um, I was just reading online last week about a few restaurants who have hired uh, deaf servers. And what they do is the um, server walks around with either the menu, if you're doing like pencil and paper, and it's a, uh, um, the menu has like laminated on it and like uh, a marker. Or if it's more of an electronic place, they walk around with like an iPad with the menu on it. And then uh, they go around to the people at the table and the people at the table just like circle what they want on the menu. And then the deaf person goes back and takes the order and everything. And uh, so there's more restaurants that are hiring deaf servers. And really, if if you stop and think about it, it's not really that hard to make accommodations for the communication barrier. So I think, you know, while it's great to employ people in the kitchen, it's also cool to employ people, like, if they want to be a waitress or a waiter, like, cool. Kelly, it's Linda. Of course, then if a blind person comes into the restaurant and needs to uh, choose their (laughs) meal, there's a little bit of a challenge there. Okay, but you know what? The blind people, if you guys learned a few signs, you could do the finger spelling in the hand, and then that would work. See? Yeah, Yeah, I would still learn. So I want to ask you a question. Um, we know that um, the movie Coda won the, won the Oscar, and um, there's there's a lot of talk about um, having disabled um, actors and you know directors and so forth being involved in the movie and TV industry. And and tell me what you think about uh, whether uh, deaf people in some ways have a a leg up on that issue as opposed to blind people in terms of being accepted as potential um, involved in, in the movie industry? That's a great question. And, you know, I'm friends with uh, a couple of people who have been in some like videos and commercials, and I follow some of those deaf actors and actresses um, on social media. So I kind of see their more personal posts. And I think that they have worked really hard for a very long time. Like if you look at Marley Matlin, she won yeah. the Academy Award. I mean, gosh, what was that? 25 years oh, ago? No, it was over 30 years. Yeah. It was a so movie my taken... husband and I saw on our first date. So that was like oh, 1988. So. so you remember it well. Exactly. Totally. So that was a really long time from 1988 
all the way until this year when they recognized a deaf gentleman and then the movie itself. And it took that long. And honestly, I feel like the deaf actors and actresses have been working so hard for so many years just to try to prove to people that they can do it and that the only barrier is the language barrier, like that there's no other barrier besides the language. So in some ways, I think they do have a leg up in that. I think the greater community, for whatever reason, thinks like ASL is cool. Like, I can't tell you, I'm an ASL interpreter. I can't tell you how many times people come up to me. And I know that they mean well, but if I had a nickel for every time somebody said, oh, sign language is so pretty. I just love watching you. And it's like, okay, I'm not up here doing this for your entertainment, but thanks. I I understand that you mean well. Um, So I think in that way, like people are fascinated by it, but I also Mm -hmm. think in a way that blind folks have a leg up in that you already speak English. Like you don't have a communication barrier. You just have maybe um, a, you know, people are, are judging that you, you can't do something. And so I think if people who want to act and want to be involved in that, would like just advocate and like try to get in there i feel like now like they the deaf folks have like broken the door down like hey we're here and we're talented and we can do this and obviously you can see that this movie was a great movie and people enjoyed it because people got to see this glimpse into this life that they didn't know about and so obviously your stories are glimpses into lives that people are gonna find interesting and people don't know about and Hollywood is famous for, um, you know, being fascinated by the unknown, you know, learning more about something that they didn't know about. So I hope, I guess I hope that this, um, that CODA winning the award kind of breaks down the walls so that more movies like that will get made. I think that would be really cool. I would go see a movie about, uh, you know, a school for the blind or, just a guy at work who happens to be blind. Like I would totally go see that movie. Yeah, I got one up here, Sarah. So no, the the real blind people of CCB, right? Mm-hmm. Now they have, like right. the, the real oh, house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, reality, reality show. show. Oh, I, I had some one time. I had somebody go. You know, this is Sarah Hare. She's a professional blind person. I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> Oh my gosh, Sarah, that is awesome. I love that. She's a professional blind person. I'm a professional blind person. I don't just play one on TV, folks. Yay. Oh my gosh. That is so, you know, the stuff people say, right? We do have a few more hands. Um, Oh, sure. Oh, sure. I'm going to, that's okay. I'm going to take Judy Wilkinson next and then Charlene, you'll be right after her. Like maybe somebody in our audience. Well, I got to tell you one of the funniest stories. I've talked to a lot of kids uh, over the years in schools and I was in the UK one time with a, with a group of kids. First of all, you know, I kept telling them they didn't have to call me miss. And I said, Oh, you don't have to call, you know, they always call their teachers miss or sir. So they used to anyway. So I'd say, you don't have to call me miss. And they'd say, Oh, thank you, miss. Um, (laughs) But anyway, the question the girls asked me was, I have pierced ears. How do you know how to put in your earring was one of the the funniest questions I ever got. But in all seriousness, I know Connie Bateman talked to us in the Kahlua group about how she managed a class in um, ASL. So I actually am wondering, how can we blind folks 
learn ASL? Um, thank you, Judy. Thank you. Um, I think obviously I, I think that people should learn ASL from deaf people because they're the experts. I've been doing this for 30 years and I am not, I mean, I'm an, I'm a fluent signer and I can translate between the two languages, but I always send people to a place that has a deaf teacher and, um, you know, there's a lot of folks within the deaf community who also experience vision problems and to various degrees. And so they're super familiar with, you know, do you need to just sit close? Do I need to sign in a smaller space? Do I need hand over hand? And so I think negotiating with an instructor of like, do you need one-on-one or can you sit in a class with everyone else as long as you're positioned correctly? So um, you know, there's such a wide variety of vision uh, abilities. So I think working with the instructor to figure out if it needs to be a one-on-one situation or if you can actually be in a class, I, I think they will welcome you. All right. Next, Charlene. Yes, I was <clears throat> going to mention that there's actually a um, deafblind sign language. I learned it quite a few years ago, unfortunately. I have now forgotten it, but I was at a camp in uh, Arizona and counselors, These there was two gentlemen, both of them were totally deaf, uh, totally blind and very, and almost totally deaf. And the counselors would talk to them, but I thought, you know, they're probably figuring that those guys are have to talk to them. I bet they'd like somebody who would just walk up and talk to them. So that's what I started doing is I learned some signs. And so I could not do full conversations, but I certainly could communicate with them. I could, you know, ask them how they are. I could see if they needed something. Um, I got them to know me because I had a guide dog and I would, you know, take their hand and put it on my dog's head so that they knew who they were talking to. Um, But that is something to learn because the sign language for the deaf blind, at least at that time, was not the same as the sign language for the sighted. Um, it was special, so you could do it right inside the hands of somebody. Mm-hmm. And that should be learned by, that would be something good to be learned by people also, and especially in our group, because we have several deafblind uh-huh. individuals. And with um, um, a lot of people who have RP have the Usher right. syndrome, which takes away their hearing. Right. So, yeah, it's more common than people think. And I think the thing that's really different about the tactile sign language is you're still doing it. You're just trying to make it so that it's accessible to the person's hand who's like on top of your hand. So when you make like your letters and your signs, you have to be kind of conscious of, of, is it something that can be felt instead of just movement that doesn't mean anything. And there's also a thing called pro tactile sign language where um, it actually involves like two people or one person you're so it's like you sit close and then you kind of touch a person's like leg or shoulder and sometimes like I've done it with um presenters who are deafblind and we use two interpreters so one interpreter is interpreting for the audience like the questions and then there's another interpreter standing behind the deafblind individual and we do a series of like taps and um on their shoulder and on their back with our fingers, like we might like draw our hands down or we draw like what the room looks like with our finger on the person's back. So if it's like a square room, I'll draw a square on the person's back and then I'll, I'll say like where the people are. And then 
if a bunch of people like laugh, I'll make these, um, I'll like tap gently on their back with all my fingers to show that people are laughing. Or if someone raises a hand, I take a finger and I put it in the middle of their back and then I go up to their shoulder so that they know that someone in the audience is raising their hand. And then that person who's speaking can um, like handle the audience well, because he knows what the people's reactions are since he can't see them. So mm. yeah, it's super cool. It's super fascinating. And once you get into it, it's uh, there's a lot to learn, but I definitely think, yeah, cooperating back and forth. is awesome. All right. Um, and next we have Karen. Hi, uh, Karen Trotter, Kelly and Linda and everybody. This has been a fabulous afternoon. What, what fun. Um, Kelly, thank you for letting me reminisce. Um, I used to teach deaf blind individuals and I miss it like crazy. And I didn't really realize that till today. <laughs> so, um, and kind of just to touch on um, Judy's question, I took college courses taught by a deaf instructor and then I had uh people in, in the advanced classes who did hands on hand and copied and mirrored what the teacher was doing. And it was great. I mean, that's the way to learn is through uh, with a deaf individual. Um, and one of my closest friends is deaf blind and we've just had the most fabulous times. And um, I have to Kelly, I have to mention really quickly the, 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 your little fart book is amazing. Um, but during that class, I remember distinctly, we had a guest presenter who was deaf. And from the back of the class, all the way to the front of the class, she was farting all the way up the aisle and making noise. And she didn't know it, of course. So we're all trying to be really, really serious and not let her know that we're just wanting to crack up. And, oh, I will never forget that. Um, it was a good story. Oh, that's awesome. I hope somebody told her eventually. I hope so, but it wasn't in my place to do so. It's kind of like when you have food in your teeth, you know, yeah. and you like really hope that someone tells you that you have broccoli in your tooth, you yeah, know, it's the exactly. same thing, right? Like if I'm walking up to the front of the class farting all the way, I kind of want to know. I hope the instructor told her. Anyway, I just had to say. <laughs> That's a great story too. All right. Next we have a uh, phone number with area code 626. Hi, should this is Karen uh, from the San Gabriel Valley chapter. I have just a couple of real quick things. Uh, first of all, as far as having a leg up, I'm not sure if the, if the hearing impaired or the visually impaired do, because I know you guys may have experienced this too, where you go into a restaurant or into a clothing store with a sighted companion, and um, the first thing that the uh, server or the attendant would say is, what does she want? Or what is she looking for? So. I've always told my friends this quick story to help them to understand that all they need to say is, I don't know, you'll have to ask her. But um, I went to a high school football game with my brother years ago and my sister-in-law, and we went to a restaurant down there, and uh, all I was eating was a hamburger, so it wasn't anything difficult. But this, I guess this other uh, couple was staring at me, and it made my brother angry. He, of course, decided so. So he got a bunch of food in his mouth and went over to them and said, here, you want to see what I'm eating? This is what I'm eating. Because he was upset. And, um, <laughs> so, um, you know, he just thought, you know, I'm just going to, and I didn't even have any idea they were staring, but he wasn't going to put up with it. But the other thing is, as far as sign language, and Christy Crispin could, could comment on this, is Christy and another 
uh, set of twins that, that we all knew were friends with a, a little guy, God rest his soul, and he was deafblind. They used to use sign language. It was they used the braille on the hand and just drew the braille mm-hmm. letters on the mm-hmm. hand, and that's how they communicated. And I always, I never had the pleasure of meeting him, but I always found that very interesting too. And I thank you for your time and everything was very wonderful. And hi, Linda Farrell. Hi, Thank Pam. You. <laughs> Thank you, Pam. Okay, next we have David Jackson. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. This has been a really fascinating afternoon. I'm really grateful I was able to break away from doing my uh, my my studies to take in this uh, wonderful presentation. So I'm hard of hearing as well as... Um, very extremely low vision now. And um, because of the hard of hearing issue, I've learned a little bit of fingerspelling and have had that opportunity to have uh, help from somebody uh, who is deaf and who has taught me. One of the techniques that I've learned is <coughs> if <coughs> my, my fingerspelling isn't working out, I'll take a pen. And I'll take the person's palm and I will use the pen and uh, spell out the letter on their palm. So, for example, uh, you know, how are you doing? I'll I'll write uh, H-O-W-A-R-E-Y-O-U doing with the question mark. And they'll get they they understand it. The person understand it understands it. So in that instance, I'm able to communicate with somebody. I just wanted to pass that along. Thank you, David. That's a great, that's a great accommodation. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, and I, I'm sure that deaf people um, would understand that as well. And that's a great, like creative way to do it for sure. Okay, and then we, our last hand for right now is Nikki. Thank you. Well, this, this kind of goes along with David's story because we had a wonderful, wonderful, very, very tiny little old lady who was at the lighthouse and she was deaf and blind. And most people ignored her because they didn't know sign language and they didn't know how to approach her. But I think the first or second day that I met her, I asked her, her um, caretaker, I said, how can I talk to her? I said, I don't know sign language. And she said, well, you know how to spell, right? And I said, yes. She said, okay. So she she got she she told her to turn her hand over. So she had her hand palm up, and she just said she said just spell spell the the words, and I did. So I was able to have an immediate conversation with her. It took a long time, but it was amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just absolutely amazing. And I sat there, and the tears were streaming down my face because I was able to talk to her. Mm-hmm. But I realized that you know other people were afraid. So I was telling everybody. Just go sit with her and spell. You know, Victoria will help you. And so it got a lot of people over there talking to her. And she had the most wonderful smile, the most wonderful laugh. And Victoria told me a couple of weeks later, she says, you just don't know what you've done. She said, it's so wonderful because she's been so happy. And she said, and I never even thought about doing that. And I'm not scared of her. So, but it was, a, it was amazing, the instant communication. Wow, but she did also know sign language, even though she, you know, she had learned it like Helen Keller did when she was quite young. Mm-hmm. So thank you, and this has been a wonderful, wonderful program. I think I'm supposed to be taking notes, but I've been so 
been <laughs> and I haven't taken a single note, but I did take photographs of all of the pages of your book, and I'm going to read them to my grandson, who is almost Thank four you. years old. Thank you. I think the book is also available on Bookshare. So if you want to get it from there, you should be able to. Okay, great. Thank you so much. I really You're appreciate it. You're welcome. That. Thank you for your story. That was a great story. Thank you. Thank do you for being have, here. Do we have time for one more hand? Uh, is there one more? Yes. Shine. All right, we'll take, we'll take one more and then we need to wrap it up. Okay, Charlene, go ahead. I have to tell you a story about a gentleman that I met at an ACB convention in Phoenix. He was so fascinating. He could he could speak, though he could not hear. He learned to speak when he was younger. He spoke four different languages, and you would hand, hand sign the letters into his hand, and he would like kind of shake his hand when he picked up on the word, and he could pick up on words within a couple of, of letters. He was fascinating to work with. That is fascinating. That's quite a... That's quite an accomplishment. Wow. Well, Kelly, at the end of another wonderful time, thank you for coming in and reading and, and sharing your writing experiences as well. Um, I think the conversations this afternoon were incredibly energizing for our group, and we uh, can look forward to um, some wonderful writing coming up. And, and Heaven knows we'll be back in touch with you for more <laughs> advice on how to proceed. Oh, I'd be happy to help anybody who has any questions. Um, I think I mentioned this last time, but my website is just my name, kellybrockenhoff.com. Um, go ahead and, uh, you know, follow me. I have a newsletter that I send out every month. Uh, you can follow me on social media. I will be having another Kickstarter project coming up in July for my next Duke the Deaf Dog book. And I would love your support. That would be awesome. And the anthology idea, I think, would be a great Kickstarter project. So if you guys actually put that together, make sure somebody contacts me. I would love to help you get that project going on Kickstarter. I think it would be an excellent project there. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> So everybody, uh, Lisa, <laughs> let's close out with a uh, door, door press. Sure, I can do that. Let's get the wheel going here. So uh, this was provided by IDC, $25 Amazon gift card. Let's spin. And the winner is Dirk Nahart. Congratulations, Dirk. Woohoo! I know that guy. Yeah, me too. Yay for you, Dirk. <laughs> All right. So, um, any announcements about tonight? I am so looking forward to the banquet. Uh, Larry's a fabulous MC. We have great awards to give out. And once again, we have the magnificent Jason Castingway coming to play for us um, this night, this evening. So let's get our beverages of choice, our food ready, and be back at six for the banquet. And our, 
And our dancing shoes are no shoes because we're oh, at home yeah. and we don't have to wear shoes That's if right. we don't want to. No, we don't. We can make <laughs> noise or not make noise either way. <laughs> That's true. And let your hair down or put it up. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Miss Linda. You're such a wonderful MC over here yourself. <laughs>